I'm so excited, guys, just super delighted that you're joining us for this brand new series that I'm calling Acts of Kindness. Uh, we're utilizing this series to launch our Be Rich to Others and your campaign, which I'll tell you a whole lot more about in just a few moments. First, let me give out some shout outs. Hey, guys, those of you who are watching from San Jose, can you make some noise in San Jose? I'm super excited you guys are joining us today. Also, for all of you who are watching across uh, various online platforms, wherever you're watching from in the world and whenever you're watching, because not everybody's watching us on a Sunday morning. Hey, I am just so glad that you're with us today. And I hope you will commit to walk with us through the next several weeks because I just believe this is going to be an extraordinarily transformational series. And I'll tell you why when we start talking about our Be Rich to Others campaign in just a few moments. First, if you notice uh, our title, Acts of Kindness, uh, on our subject page, we have scratched through random. We've done that because... These days, most people talk about kindness in terms of random acts of kindness. But the Bible teaches us that kindness should not be random, but rather it should be the way we live our lives. And especially, especially for those of us who are believers, who are Jesus followers, and those of us who are connected to NBCC, who profess a Jesus first faith, which means that he is our highest point of loyalty uh, our relationship with him sets the pace and the tone for all of our other relationships. Kindness ought to be not just things that we do, but a part of our character, who we are. So here's what we know to be true. Not every kind person is a Jesus follower, but every Jesus follower ought to be a kind person. So here's the question I want you to ask today. Just say this out loud. Repeat this question with me. Just point at yourself and just say, when people think of me, go ahead and say it, do they think of kindness? Let's say it again. When people think of me, do they think of kindness? So the question is, as you reflect on that, wherever you are on the kindness uh, spectrum, we can become even more kind. How? I like the way uh, Mr. Eric uh, Hoffa uh, refers uh, to this uh, in his quote the late Eric Harper, he says, we are made kind by being kind. In other words, somebody say practice. Yeah, practice. That's what we're going to do as we engage uh, what we do every uh, single year, what we call our Be Rich to Others campaign. Now, every year we engage in a Be Rich to Others campaign because that's how we practice as a collective community, wherever you're living across the country or the world, that's how we practice becoming more like Jesus, loving more like Jesus in the world. That's how we get all of the faith talk that we do inside of facilities like where I'm preaching from out into the world to make a transformational difference. Now, here's the theme text from which we get the title, Be Rich to Others. It's uh, words written by the Apostle Paul to his mentee, Timothy, who he himself is pastoring a young congregation. And Paul is trying to instruct him uh, how to shape that congregation. And so here's what Paul says uh, to the young pastor. He says, tell them, tell the people you're pastoring to use their money to do good. They should, here's the words, be rich in good works, and generous to those in need, always being ready to share, here's the other part of it, with others. You see it? Be rich to others. This year, 
we're going to focus in, you know, every year when we engage in this effort, you know, we practice praying together. We practice giving and being generous together, serving together, which makes our love concrete in the world. This year, we're going to practice being kind together. And as a matter of fact, the verse that I just read, I, I personally could translate it to read just like this. They should be rich in kindness, generous to those in need, you see, always being ready to share with others. Wow. Okay. So let me just take a few moments. I'm going to roll out the details of our Be Rich campaign next week. So make sure you're with us next week. But let me just tell you, for those of you who are joining us for the very first time, uh, here's some of the things that we did last year in this Be Rich campaign. Uh, we were able, in the name of service, we were able to mobilize nearly 2,000 hygiene kits, put them together and gave them to uh, strategic um, uh, shelters uh, who are providing shelter for the unhoused communities uh, here across uh, the Bay Area and in other parts of the country world where we had NBCC people participating, nearly 2,000. And then we raised over $100,000 and we gave every cent away to eight superstar organizations, both internationally and domestically, who are educating the marginalized, providing uh, shelter for the unhoused, who are uh, helping to facilitate uh, people to uh, breaking free from drug and alcohol addiction and reuniting them with their family, healed and whole, uh, who are providing job training and job placement. And they're doing this for thousands of people, both domestically and internationally. And we supported that work. We made the love of Jesus visible through the more than $100,000 that you guys gave that we were able to give away. Why would we do this? Well, I love what Ephesians 2, 7 says. Here's what Paul says why we should do it. He says, so God can point to us. Think about this. He can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness. Wow. When God talks across the ages of a people that represents his kindness uh, across generations, I want it to be so that the folk at NBCC are among the people he's talking about. You would be among those folk. Wow. All right. I'm going to roll out the details of what we're going to do next year, next week. Uh, and, and, and this year, we're going to take it to the next level. You heard what we did previously. It's going to go to the next level. So make sure you're with us next week. But there's two things you can do now. First of all, I want to make sure that you save these two dates, November the 12th and the 13th. Those dates are our serve dates where those of you who are here in the Bay Area, we're going to go out by hundreds and hundreds into strategic places across the community, and we're going to serve. We're going to make the love of Jesus concrete and visible. And for those of you who are in other parts of the world and the country, mark these dates down also because we're going to challenge you to get your family and your friends, pick a place where you can go serve, and we'll help facilitate that uh, so you can make the love of Jesus visible right where you are. That's the first thing. Mark these two dates down. Secondly, I want to make sure that you uh, uh, engage with our Acts of Kindness Challenge card. We've made a list of some, some different ways that you and I can practice being kind starting now, starting this week. And so if you're in our San Jose campus, we have already given you this card physically. You have an electronic version of this. For all of you watching uh, online, uh, you can simply go, uh, scan the QR code and it'll take you to our website. 
and you can download this card. Listen, put it on your refrigerator, put it on the mirror in your bedroom, you know, make it a screensaver on your computer, uh, whatever you need to do to put it in front of you on a daily basis so that you're reminding yourself to do some acts of kindness. You don't just have to focus on these. Hopefully they will stimulate additional acts. We've designed the card with a uh, with a hashtag so that you can share what you're doing online. Hopefully you can help us to kind of launch a be kind effort across social media uh, platforms. So I want to encourage you to be sure that you join us and do that. Uh, and while doing that, expect to see us back here uh, next week. Okay. Now, let me talk to you just a little bit about the context, and then I'm going to jump into the scripture, but very quickly about the context where we're going to go out and start practicing the power of kindness. Can you say the power of kindness? Here's the context. Here's the backdrop that we're practicing the power of kindness against. We, we're, we're, we are practicing against a backdrop. We're here in America. We're four weeks away from a midterm election. A whole lot of angst are happening around that. Our economy is tightening up. Money is getting more and more tight. Cultural changes are happening everywhere. We're in the midst of an international war, and now they're talking about the use of uh, potential nuclear weapons. And when we think about all these different pandemic that just won't let us go, the potential of new variants just around the corner. And when we think about all of this, guys, listen, fact of the matter, so often we just feel powerless, powerless. And either we're powerless or we're just like exhausted. In either case, for those of us who are in touch with our powerlessness, sometimes it manifests as frustration and anger, and we find ourselves becoming mean and ugly with other folk. I'm talking primarily now that Jesus follows, and the rest can just kind of fall in if you recognize this behavior. And it comes from a place of powerlessness. Now, here's why I'm calling this out, guys. Because kindness is both an act of love and an action of power. We begin to reclaim our power as we do the work of kindness in the world, in the room, right where we are. I'm mindful of a story, a true story, an African-American woman, an elderly woman walks into a facility and she sees a fellow who's connected to the uh, neo-Nazis. He's sitting there, he's got symbols of hate uh, all on, tattooed on him and symbols on his clothes. And she walks up to him and looks at him like she's looking at her own son. And she says to him in the most, in the most extraordinarily kind way, you're better than that. She says, you know, you're better than that. And then she walks away. It's not just what she says, but it was how she said it. That caused those words to reverberate for days and weeks on end. Ultimately, that young man left the neo-Nazi movement and ultimately surrendered his life to Jesus and became a Jesus follower. You see, that's what I mean when I say that when you do kindness in the world, you're exercising power. So we're going to practice the power of kindness collectively together. All right, let's look together at our text today. We're going to stay in this text for the next four weeks Most of you will recognize this story as the story of what is called the Good Samaritan. All right, let's read it together. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. 
and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. And then he goes on to talk about how a Jewish priest came by and saw the man and kept going. Temple assistant came by, looked at the man and kept going. And then Jesus says this. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed the wounds with oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to the inn where he took care of him. Then Jesus finishes this story with a question. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. And the man to whom he was speaking to said, the one who showed him mercy. Mercy is the word for kindness here. Then Jesus said, yes, now go do the same. Wow. Now, here's a couple things you need to know. First of all, the story that Jesus tells is about kindness. We see words like compassion and mercy inside of this story to remind us it's all about kindness. But the context of this story is about character. Let me illustrate. It starts really in verse 25. Here's what it says. One day, an expert in the religious law stood up to test Jesus. Notice those words. By asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the notion that he stood up to test Jesus is simply the text way of saying that this young man asked Jesus' question with the intent of exposing that Jesus was not who Jesus said he was. The focus was to expose Jesus' character. Notice how it continues. Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? How do you understand it? The man answered, and we recognize these words from a few weeks ago. I refer to this as the great commandment, a huge part of our vision statement here at NBCC. Here's what the young man said. You must love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this, and you will live. The man wanted to justify his action. Stop, notice the word, justify his action. The guy starts off essentially trying to expose Jesus' character, examining Jesus' character, but the story ends up with this guy's character actually being examined and being exposed. Now, let me just say a word right here before I move on. Uh, you know, right now in this time in which we're living, Jesus followers, listen guys, our character being examined. People are trying to figure out, is our faith expression authentic? Are we real? Or are we just playing games? I'll come back to this in just a few moments. So the guy tries to cover up his tracks, right? So he asks Jesus a more philosophical question. Well, who is my neighbor? All right. Here is the big point that I want to make for this message. I'm just going to unpack this point. And, and, and you're going to be listening for the answer to this question. What does this text have to do with being courageously kind? Now, keep that in the back of your mind. Here's the point that I want to talk about. Jesus critiques his own tribe as an act of character and as an act of kindness. 
he critiques his own tribe as an act of character and as an act of kindness. All right, here's what we know about Jesus, a couple of things. First of all, it's Colossians 1.15 that tells us that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. That when you see Jesus, you are looking at God. It's 1 John uh, 4.16 that tells us that God is love, meaning that God just doesn't do loving things, that his very nature, his very character is defined by love. And this is to suggest then uh, that whenever Jesus acts, whether he's healing, teaching, or confronting, it's motivated from his character by love. Now, Paul teaches us that whenever we're talking about the love of God, come on now, he says we're talking about kindness. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verse 4, he says love is both patient and kind. So, it is sufficient to suggest that Jesus just doesn't do kind things. His character is kindness. Even if you don't think that Jesus is the Son of God, here's what you know just about reading about him in history. You know this. Jesus is kind. Yeah, it's his nature to be kind. We all agree on that. So, that is to suggest that whatever Jesus does, whether he's teaching or healing or confronting, it's motivated from a place of kindness. Now with that as the, as a backdrop, I've said to you that he has, that in this story, he tells this story to critique his own tribe, both from a place of character and as an act of kindness. You know, sociologists today will tell us that one of the phenomenons that has taken place in the world in which we live, certainly here in America, but also in other parts of the world, is this incredible tribalization that is happening, tribalism that's taking place. People are just splintering off into various groups, right? You know, you've got the conservatives and the liberals and the evangelicals and the progressives. They all have, each of them have a tribe. You got the immigrants over here. You got African-Americans over here. You got the Latinos over here. You got folk who are organizing around, you know, they're the educated and the elite class. Come on, you've got the rural uh, and working class over here. Uh, everybody's kind of got a tribe. And there's two things that are interesting and unique about how we think of tribalism today. This is not always the case, but it's more and more the case that if you violate a particular principle in whatever tribe that you're in, you're going to be condemned. And what we mean by that is you're going to be canceled. We're going to kick you out of the tribe. You're going to, you, know, you, can't be on my, you can't be on the Facebook page. We're going to move your name out of a phone book. Can't come to the meetings anymore. You are canceled. That's the first thing. It's unique about the day in which we're living. The second thing that's unique about this tribalism is that we, you know, we're pretty proficient when it comes to critiquing others, people of other tribes, you know, calling them out, yelling, screaming, debating, pointing out what's wrong. Our challenge occurs when it comes to shining a light on our own selves or critiquing our own tribe. This is why what Jesus does here in the telling of this story, it is so both profound and challenging at the same time. Because Jesus critiques his own tribe. And this is not the first and won't be the last time he does it. As a matter of fact, he knows that as he, as he periodically does this, this will be one of the reasons, not the whole story, but one of the reasons that will ultimately lead to his death and his crucifixion. And yet, he loves his people so much that he's willing 
to risk losing his all in order for them to become all they can be in God. That is the Jesus that we serve. That's what we learn as we watch him critique his own, his own training. All right, let me show you how he critiques his tribe. First of all, notice that Jesus is Jewish. And he's the one telling this story. He's the one who structured this story as a teaching point. Secondly, in verse 30, notice that the man that Jesus is talking about who got uh, robbed and beaten up is a Jewish man. It's pointed out in verse 30. He's lying on the side of the road, almost dead. Notice that the first priest who walks by, uh, according to verse 31, uh, is a Jewish religious leader. He just sees his own brother there, keeps going. Notice that the second person who walks by is also a Jewish religious leader, verse 31. He's called a temple assistant. In other words, we call him a Levite often in, in the King James Version. He actually walks up to the man, looks down at the man, sees him barely alive, and walks away. Jesus structures this story. Surprisingly, the crowd that is standing around him, they're kind of shocked, right? Because they're made up of Jews and Gentiles, meaning non-Jews. And I think there are Samaritans there in listening distance as well. And they're shocked to discover how he, how he is talking about them in this story. The second thing we know is that Jesus knows how his people, his Jewish people, think about themselves. That when they think about what is the one people on the planet that really models the heart and character of God, they would say it would be them, right? They're the people of the book. So they're the Torah is the center of their life. For in fact, they know the answer to the question of the greatest commandment. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind, and Love your neighbor as yourself. It's them, right? It's them. They would be expected to do the God-like thing. But in the story, it's not them. It's actually the despised Samaritan. Now, Jesus uses that term intentionally because the Jewish community in that day despised Samaritans. They hated them. Primarily because they felt that these people took the sacred Jewish religion and desecrated it by marrying outside of the faith and the cross-culture and bringing in all kinds of pagan practices. So they so despised the Samaritans that they wouldn't even let them come into the Jewish temple to worship. They wouldn't even pass through a Samaritan village or town. They'd go around. They stayed separate. That's how much they despised. So in a Jewish mind, the last person to be expected to, to, to reflect the character of God would be a despised And yet in Jesus' story, the one who is the God-like figure in the story is the despised Samaritan. And so when he asked the Jewish expert the question, which one of these guys, right, are the ones uh, that is uh, most neighborly? He has to say the one who showed mercy, who showed kindness. It is Jesus leveling a critique against his own tribe. For no other reason than an act of kindness because he wanted to reveal to them their blind spots so they could become more of what God had called them to be. Now, here's an important point. Jesus is able to do this because he recognizes the distinction between being nice and being kind. You know, Patrick Lencioni is one of the gurus in the kind of uh, corporate industry. Some years ago, he wrote a book called The Advantage. And in the book, he talks about how to build cohesive 
leadership teams. And he says one of the barriers to building cohesive leadership teams is that people often confuse being nice with being kind. They don't know the difference. He says, for example, this also can be applied to your family in whatever relationships that you have. He says that in a leadership context, or perhaps in your family, people, uh, being nice is this. Being nice is when you tell uh, folk you work with or folk that you love what they want to hear. You ignore the elephant in the room, right? You, because you don't want to lose their favor. You don't want to risk your relationship with them. You want them to see you in a certain way. You still want to gain the benefits from them that you are gaining. So, so you ignore the elephant in the room. The problem is that over a period of time, whatever that elephant is that in the room, it begins to fester in you. And at some point it causes frustration and you blow up. You blow up the cohesion in a leadership team or your family or your marriage or your Right? They blow up. Because you chose to be nice rather than kind. Being kind, Mr. Luciani says, uh, is when you tell those, my wife and my daughter, they got this down good when it comes to me. Come on. It's when you tell those that you love what they need to hear. But you do it, watch this, in the same way that that African-American woman told that, that, that neo-Nazi, like she's talking to her son, in the same way, notice the tone that Jesus engages, telling this story, not with a kind of uh, uh, arrogance, but, 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 you know, speak the truth in love. Right? Do it with a kindness. You tell them what they need to hear. You're willing to risk your relationship and what you get from them because you're so committed. You love them so much. You want to see the best for them and the best for the organization. This is what Jesus is practicing. He's practicing this kind of kindness when he calls the blind spots out for his own Jewish people. It's courageous kind, uh, kindness because it requires character to come to critique your own people as he was doing. All right, let me give you two contemporary stories, one out of the political world and the other out of the racial ethnic world to really model the importance of why we ought to replicate, particularly those of us who are Jesus-first people, right? Jesus-first faith people. Why we need to replicate the practice of courageous kindness in our everyday lives in order for our witness to have substance and meaning and power. First, a political example. Oh, my goodness. Uh, back in the 90s, over 20 years ago, around 1997 and 98, President Bill Clinton at the time, Democratic president here in the United States, was forced to confess and acknowledge that he'd had an affair with Monica Lewinsky and lied about it. In that day, I was pastoring a church, Roxbury Presbyterian Church, vast majority was Democrat, the community was Democrat, all supporters of Mr. Clinton. And I took a stand in the pulpit and I called them out. You see, I had been preaching about fidelity to marriage and adultery and being honest and all that kind of stuff. And the folk in my pews needed to hear me to say that at the end of the day, sin is sin. And despite what the polls were saying, the reality is you can't have a private character and a public character, right? The polls were saying we like what he's doing publicly, so high poll numbers, we don't like what he's doing privately. You only get to have one character. I preach that message. If his wife can't trust him, surely I can't trust him on at various points. All right. My Democratic colleagues, particularly my African-American Democratic 
pastor friends essentially said to me, they didn't use these words, but this was their sentiments. Listen, everybody makes mistakes. Come on, chill out. Listen, at the end of the day, <laughs> we've got to protect them against those despised Republicans. They didn't use those words, but that was the sentiments that they used. We need his policies, they said. Nevertheless, I spoke out and preached in my pulpit. 20 plus years later, the same thing happens, but this time it's with a Republican president, our most recent Republican president, when he was running for office, was forced to acknowledge, because a tape came out, wherein he was sharing that uh, as typical behavior that he would uh, grab women in the most vile and abusive way. He was forced to acknowledge that. So I turned to my Republican white evangelical pastor friends in this particular context and say, you know, we're going to say anything about it. You're going to say anything about it. Oh, no, no, no. Listen, everybody makes mistakes. Come on. We need his policies. We've got to protect. They didn't use these words, but this was the sentiments against those despised Democrats. And so they were silent. Now, here's what's interesting. I was silent too. I didn't say anything either. Not because I had the concerns of the national politics at the forefront of my mind, but, but I was charged with leading uh, this unique community. We had a large group of Republicans and Democrats together, and I didn't want to be confused with, uh, you know, trying to play partisan politics. So I, I, I was quiet. The young women sitting there who needed to hear from their pastor on that issue, I was quiet. And in that moment, come on, unlike 20-some years earlier, I fell the character test. Yeah. I didn't exercise, at the end of the day, courageous kindness. I chose to be nice. I failed the character test. This is the problem, guys, right? At the end of the day, me and my Republican evangelical colleagues and my Democratic African-American colleagues, we all did the same thing, right? We ultimately made choices based around what we didn't want to lose rather than speaking out for what should be right. And when people see that happening among and around us, they question the authenticity of our faith and our preaching. So let me just take a moment now, and I want to make sure that I set the record straight here today uh, as we talk about this. And here's the deal. The behavior that Mr. Trump ultimately acknowledged, I want to be clear about it. That kind of behavior is not only a gross miscarriage of justice, it is one of the most vile, sinful acts that one person can do to another. That kind of behavior must never be ignored nor supported. He, Mr. Trump, was just flat out wrong. That's for the record. That's the kind of 
kind of courageous kindness that Jesus follows. At the end of the day, you can make whatever decision you want, but let's be consistent in our character, particularly those of us preachers who are saying, let's call sin, sin, wherever we see it. People are looking for that kind of consistency. Let's be Jesus first in our faith and be willing to critique our own tribe. That's the political example. Now let me give you another example. You know, when Jesus critiqued his tribe, here's the deal. Let's go back to the text. Here's the deal. When he critiqued his tribe, he was critiquing his religion because Judaism was the religion that he practiced. He was critiquing his political context because the religious leaders that he was challenging were in fact at the center of the political life of the Jewish people. And he was critiquing his own racial ethnic group because the Jewish people are in themselves a racial ethnic group. It reminds me of a story as I hasten towards conclusion. Some weeks ago, you may have seen this on Facebook, if you're on Facebook, it went viral. An African-American man is, is seen talking to an elderly white cashier. Evidently, the son of the African-American male, I think around 10 or 11 years old, was misbehaving in the store, and this older white cashier was trying to discipline the young man and ended up calling that young African-American the N-word. The father heard about it, brought the boy, and challenged the, 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 the fella. What I found to be remarkable was two things about this challenge. The first thing I was just impressed by is that the dad wasn't screaming, he wasn't yelling, he wasn't cussing at the guy. He actually approached the guy as though he, he, he thought there might be a chance to redeem him. So, so he just talked his way through him, explained to him the history of the N-word, and, and explained to him the psychological impact it could have on his 10, 11-year-old child, explained to him his own psychological situation, the father that is, meaning that over the last six weeks, is in the height of COVID, that he had lost four or five of his dear relatives. And he said, look, if he was somebody else, perhaps he would jump across the desk and beat the guy up, he says, but that's not who he is. That's not how he rides because he was a Jesus follower. He had a different ethic, right? And so he's challenging, come on now, the, 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 the racist attitude that came out of this fella with, the, with this notion that there's room for redemption. So he's educating him, watch this. But at the same time, he says about the young man, he says, now when I get him home, I'm going to deal with him. Because we didn't raise him to behave like he behaved in this store. He didn't deserve to be called the N-word. He went back to make that clear. But I don't endorse that behavior. All right, I tell that story as I've hustled towards the conclusion. Watch this. Because this is a good story for us who are African-American and Latino uh, parents who over the last 15 years have watched a disproportion of, of our young men of color be shot down by the police. Without question in my mind that a lot of that has to do with racial bias. A lot of those young men were thought to be involved in criminal activity, found out they weren't. Some of those young men were involved in criminal activity, but it didn't rise to the level of using that kind of lethal force. Now, we need to learn from the father and the story that I just told you about. On the one hand, we've got to hold the police and the institutions responsible with, come on, the faith that there's room for God to work redemption, right? So we got to call out racial bias where we see it, protest against it, demand better. But at the same time, for our young people who uh, are on occasion participating in behavior that should not be endorsed by us, we got to call that out too. 
If they're involved in criminal activity, we've got to be able to say in public, we do not endorse that behavior. We've got to call it out. Now, here's one of the reasons that we don't. We're afraid that if we publicly call out the behavior where it is criminal, it will undermine our ability to make the argument about racial bias. But at the reality, at the reality at the end of the day, come on, character always wins the day. And on occasion, it's true that it's racial bias and the young men are exercising behavior that we should not be endorsing. And we need to be able to say both publicly and privately. It's because Jesus teaches us that that's what courageous kindness looks like. It'll come from a place of love. We expect more from our young people and we expect more from the police and from the system. We've got demanded on both ends. Can somebody say courageous kindness comes out of a place of love? Oh my gosh. All right, let me wrap this up. Take two minutes and wrap this up. One more thing. Jesus is able to exercise courageous kindness because he knows the difference between nice and kindness. But he also does it in a way that when he critiques, he never condemns. Uh, Here's what I mean. Condemnation in the worst form means to render a verdict that this person is beyond redemption. And so you sever the relationship. You cancel him. You kick him out of the tribe. You say, I don't want to be one of them. Jesus doesn't do that, does he? Nowhere does Jesus say, I'm no longer Jewish. Nowhere does Jesus disown his people. Watch this, because he's standing in tradition of his father. And his father, come on now, as as you look back across Jewish history, do you know that the Jewish prophetic history is the only religious history in the world, come on now, that, 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 that regularly critiqued its own tribe? I mean, it was the Jewish community that told us about Abraham who, who out of fear lied about his wife, said she was his sister and allowed the Pharaoh to take his, him, Sarah as his own wife. It was, they was critiquing their own tribe. It was the Jewish community that told us about a David who had a man killed so he could have an affair with his wife and ultimately marry him. Adulterous David, the great King David. It was the Jewish people who told us about how their waywardness caused them to be kicked out of Jerusalem and they ended up in exile for 70 some years. And yet, my friend, yet, my friend, yet, my friend, we hear The grand story in all of those examples, nowhere does God unpeople them. He continues to say, these are my people. Look at the passage from Jeremiah 33. Look at what he says to them. He says, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love and I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. He didn't unpeople. Here's the point. God says, I can critique you. I can discipline you because when I commit to you, my love and my relationship is sure. It's trustworthy. And you know, I'm just trying to spur you to be a better self. This is what the text means when Paul says in Romans, he says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. He's not saying that Jesus won't critique you. We just discovered he will. 
Come on out. If you're walking with Jesus, he'll critique you. The Holy Spirit will convict you. Scripture will challenge you. Come on. Uh, that's the community. I hope that NBCC is, is that kind of community where we can experience that. But what he's saying is that when you're convicted and when you're challenged, that Jesus at no time will disown you in this respect. He holds on to his commitment. His love is never diminished, that he remains committed to you. And so you can trust him when he critiques you. Oh, may this be the community that we are here at NBCC, that we can disagree in love, that we can be instruments of courageous kindness and recipients of courageous kindness and still walk together because we are Jesus' first community. And that is my prayer. Amen and amen. Here's the prayer I want to challenge you to pray uh, as you get ready to uh, move throughout this week. Put the prayer up there. Uh, here's the prayer. Take a picture of it. Lord, give me the courage and strength of character to be kind. We'll see you next week.